0: And I think that's the beginning of me kind of figuring out that in the way that I've come to understand it, it's an insult to the divine for me to be smaller than I am called to be, and it is as equally insulting for me to be larger than I am called to be in any given moment. Mm. That the divine asks of me not one thing, that my practice and the world around me asks of me multiple things, and sometimes they can be at the same time, which is, you know, a quandary, but that's the... That's the deep question that that lives for me about where's the call and what is my piece of a collective call?
1: This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversations at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week we're talking with my dear friend, Teo Drake. We'll talk about the relationship between intention and impact what it means to be right-sized, the rage of coming of age during the AIDS epidemic and being a trans and HIV positive poster child, having a quiet nature and fighting white supremacy at the same time, and taking risk as a devotional act. Teo is a spiritual activist, an educator, a practicing Buddhist and yogi, and an artisan who works in wood and steel. And Teo says that as a blue-collar, queer-identified trans man living with AIDS, he has 101 reasons to not want to be present in his own skin. The physical and spiritual practice of yoga and Buddhist traditions have made it possible for Teo to begin to heal and feel at home in his own body. And when he isn't helping spiritual spaces be more welcoming and inclusive of queer and transgender people or helping queer and trans folks find authentic spiritual paths, he can be found teaching martial arts, yoga, and woodworking to kids. His writing can be found in the anthology Yoga and Body Image and the blog Roots Grow the Tree. And Teo's birthday was just last week, he turned 51, and so please join me in celebrating another year of Teo Drake as you listen to his voice. And hey, quick announcement, if you're listening to this right when it comes out, the week of June 11th, 2018, we are currently at Allied Media Conference in Detroit. Our remote national team that works on the podcast is for many of us, for the first time, converging uh, to host a workshop together. And so check out our Instagram, at Healing Justice, for live updates from the conference. If you're not able to be there, you can peek in on our experience. And if you will be there, come and join us at 11 a.m. on Friday for our Healing Justice Podcast Story Lab Workshop. You'll be able to share your voice and your perspective on resilience to be part of a future episode. There's also still time to chip in to support our travel cost to Allied Media Conference. We're doing a joint fundraiser with our friends from Tonic Podcast. And so if you can chip in a few bucks to help get us there, you can donate at gofundme.com H-J-A-M-C. That's GoFundMe.com slash H-J-A-M-C, as in Healing Justice Allied Media Conference. Thank you for considering giving to support us in getting there. And thank you for being with us right now and listening to this conversation. Here is the conversation between me and Teo. Hi, Teo. Hi, Keith. (laughs) Thank you so much for making it down to Brooklyn, New York and coming to hang out and record a conversation together. I'm excited. There's this one story that is like one of my favorite stories that you tell that I just want, I want to ask you to tell because I want people to hear it. About your friend in your community in Massachusetts Mm. who came over and met your partner for the first time. And like some of the ways in which like this dance of how do we treat and Mm. care for one another. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's a lot we have to learn to do it well and also we know how to care for each other. Underneath all of that learning, we
0: know how to how to love each other. So, mm-hmm. We were living in Boston at the time, and Alex, who's my partner, is flamingly genderqueer, and that's his own words, like assigned female at birth, you know, and identifies as a genderqueer boy and is as sort of flamboyant a human being as you could possibly have. And when we were talking about moving to where we currently live, which was a far more small-town, rural environment, people were like, are you out of your mind? Like, you're going to take this flashy flamboyant gender non-conforming being out of a city with a lot of queer community and this is obviously their view of that not mine but and bring him to where right mm-hmm. and i was like wow you have not spent a lot of time with people whose perhaps their economic interdependence Right? there's a lot of ways in which people can come together that isn't necessarily around theory mm-hmm. and critique and analysis there's a lot of other ways of being you know, and one of the ways that that played out was I have, I have a lot of friends who are really savvy about queerness and even, you know, cis straight friends who they know the lingo.
1: And cis means
0: non-trans, right? Folks who are assigned a particular sex at birth and that's their happy place to this day. And for those of some of us, that neighborhood didn't work in all kinds of ways. I had a friend of mine who I had gutted the house and we were doing this whole remodel and... As often happens, the electrician came for half the job and then never came back again. And I have a lot of skill sets, but wiring to the electrical panel was not one of them. It terrified me, right? We forgive you for that. <laughs> You're right, you know, but I'm always willing to learn, you know. But this really good friend of mine who is 15 years older than I am, is this two tour of Vietnam that mm. deeply wounded from that experience in ways that were even evident now right like but it was just one of these like caring souls was always diving into things and and so i reached out because he's an electrician and i said hey and i don't want you to do this work but can you teach me and he said i would love to but i realized in this that he had never met alex mm-hmm. right and so he was going to come to the house and this is a guy who is heavily christian much much older working class and does not live in the world of Alex's, right? Lives in the world that is pretty categorically boxed in. And I had a moment of, eek, you know, what do I do? Do I send him this email? Do I tell him about him? Like, what do I do? And I was like, no. A, I understand him and he was never gonna intellectually make it through that material because it wasn't in his world experience. So why would I set him off? And I trusted him. He comes to the house, to do this work. He has had no exposure to Alex other than he knows I have a boyfriend and that I'm deeply in love with this person. That's all that he knows. And so he comes, and all he said was, hello. <laughs> like, he just said hello, and he shook his hand, and then he hugged him. I don't think he still understands Alex's identity. I don't think if someone asked him, he would be able to give an ounce of insight into this <laughs> person that he met. Other than, mm. there's this person I love, that I've been in, in a friendship with for a long time, who had a need, that a skill that I had. You know he knows that he could call, and I would do the same thing, and he came you know and so and we fed him. There was never the sort of the ways that I often see with people who lead with theory or with analysis or with this flowchart right? I have friends who i who do have that approach, and before they wanted to meet Alex, I felt like I was giving them an application to meet Alex, like they were like what pronouns and they would send me these emails that I would have to like answer them like, "Can you just meet it? like <laughs> you know we'll figure that out." There's obviously downsides that my friend makes mistakes. He blunders into a lot of things. But it was just one of those moments of just pure care of like, I don't need to understand you necessarily because my friend loves you and you are really good for him. And we're gonna go from here, which has allowed some other harder conversations down the line. Like, How do you make sense of your political views when you know your political views hurt me? Yeah. I'm not gonna yell at you. I understand you had two tours in Vietnam. You have every reason to distrust your government. And it put you on a different side of distrust than I do. And your life experience took you down a path that is in current collision course with my folks. How do you sit with the love that that you feel for me and the harm? In the same way, how do I sit with the ways in which often, coming out of a white, radical, college-educated analysis, how does this movement hurt you, right? How do we not see you? And those are the things I think about. I think information is helpful. But if we're walking around with a checklist in front of our faces and never see the world around us and the Mm. deep, deep nuance, and if we don't dare to lead with our hearts, particularly in moments of the potential for that that kind of relating, Mm. if we lead with this very performative accountability approach, this very performative checklist, there is so much I think I miss in the ebb and flow of like, making the small mistakes with people. Because if I only operate on a checklist, chances are the mistakes I'm gonna make are big. Because I don't allow myself that real relationship where I've sort of stumbled and had to repair and then learn, right? And I think those are the things that, in my experience, have been the guides for me in terms of doing this work, is the smaller stumbles. I've made colossal mistakes. Mm -hmm. The courage to come back from colossal mistakes has also come from my experience with being able to repair the small ones in mm. relationship, right? Like, mm. and to see people's hearts along with their identities and their motivations and all of the, the sometimes the ill will, no absolutes, but that's a big part of it. Sometimes we can intuit our way to places mm. without ever really understanding them. And then the work is, how do we understand them? Mm-hmm. It
1: just feels like such a relief to me to imagine that that kind of leaning back into just trusting ourselves Trusting, like, the humanity and the heart at the center of why we may be on on one side of the spectrum feeling like we need to know, unlearn all the things and like, do them right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or developing a narrative about, like, well, like, I know what's happening is wrong, but I don't know enough. What could I do? Like, I don't understand the things that people who, quote, unquote, are activists, like, understand. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, like, action, action, action. I have to do enough, peace Mm -hmm. and that really like on either of those extremes there can be like this resting back into trusting ourselves to be in relationship trusting our hearts to know when we're sitting a little too long in a comfort zone on one side or the other and I was really loving the way that you were talking about accountability too. tell me if I'm saying this right but you Mm -hmm. were saying like you're actually even hardly using that word anymore and what what is that about
0: I certainly recognize the power that it has. I refrain from using it in very particular contexts, so I can really appreciate, particularly in like a moment of Black Lives Matter, there's been this very strong request for accountability coming from communities of color to white communities. Like that's a different thing, but in a lot of the sort of relational work I do, moving outside of this externally performative, like this idea that I'm going to do things because people are watching me to see that I've done the things, Mm. you know? If I am only ticking off boxes for external review without understanding, like, if I'm in relationship with people, in this moment, what does care look like? What does care look like when I'm extending it? And what does it look like when I'm receiving it? Right? Like, that for me is ultimately where my version of accountability lives. When I'm either in relationship with an actual person or in relationship with my collective understanding of need, then what does extending care look like? And at the same time, like, you know, when I do a lot of work that is multi-faith, multi-gendered, multi-racial, multi-class, and so there's not a level playing field in terms of a hierarchy of scale. So there's this sort of level as a trans person living with AIDS, like as someone who's disabled, what care do I need from folks in this work that I do? And how do I do the work to have that be visible and then to receive it? You know, as a white person, as someone who is is male-identified with these levels of protections and privileges, what does care look like in this moment, right? And what's the dance of that? And it's particularly, I think, when you're in collective deep, deep work with one another, it happens sort of in this sort of almost imperceptible shift. And I think we need to constantly come back and evaluate. But that for me is what weighs on my heart in this moment? And then how do I use the information, my understanding of the world and how power systems work? to act on what's on my heart, right? Like that's necessary. I just have avoided using the term as a buzzword as opposed to what what does that really look like relationally? Relationally with one another and then group to group, across difference, movement to movement. How do we put that into sort of culturally how we relate so that when we scale, that there's still some element of care? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Those are really big questions. Mm -hmm. And when we're in movements with one another, what does care look like?
1: I feel like there are stories of multiple things that you have taught me, partially by actively teaching me and partially by just being who you are and how yeah. you are. But one thing that just stands out to me so much is that you were the first person I ever heard use this phrase about being right-sized. Mm-hmm. When I first heard you say that phrase, I was like a little bit confounded by it, but it also felt like so relieving and so so homey in a way. I would love to just have folks have the opportunity to hear a little bit about your own journey into the work you do and how you show up in the world and mm-hmm. how this concept of being right-sized has sort of played into your own story.
0: Mm-hmm. It's come up in a lot of ways for me. Um, and part of that was growing up as a kid, particularly a kid who was experiencing a lot of physical violence. In you know, I'm 50 years old. I was raised very Roman Catholic, like culturally, religiously, all of it. And so all of the ways in which particularly knowing myself to be to be queer on some level, even as a little kid, whatever that meant, but knowing myself to be gender non-conforming, having been raised a girl, and all of the ways that the outside messages were telling me that I didn't belong or I didn't have a place, right? Which is often true with kids who are abused, about to make yourself as small as humanly possible, to not be a target, right? Mm-hmm. And I internalized that sense of to disappear as a way to, to not be harmed. I mean, that was a legitimate survival strategy. But... In the midst of growing up, there was what the institutional church was telling me. And then there was always, and I, I have no words to describe sort of what it was, but as a, as a little kid at night, I felt the presence of the divine that was, I don't even, a kid today can't classify what I mean by that. But this sense of a deeper connection that had nothing to do with the institutional church that told me that I belonged, or that I was needed, or that I was loved, without those words. But there was just this sense of sort of at night who I would talk to, and so there was this inklings as a little kid about that I needed to be very small to not be a target, but there was something else that I was precious in some way that I could never have given voice to, even if I had had the words at you know six, seven, eight, whatever that would have been. I held those two realities all the time. Neither of which could be public, but I operated with those principles all the time. You know, and as I got older and came out as queer and at, you know, 16, 17, you know, as a teenager, there's a sort of level of just pure righteous indignation mm. all the time, right? Coming of age in my early 20s, in the age of the AIDS epidemic, and raging at the world was a perfectly reasonable <laughs> response.
1: Uh-huh. Definitely.
0: In that, I had lost some sense of the connection to that sense of belovedness and some of that, I think, is purely just developmental. Some of it was I was drinking, you know, and I had lost that peace. And so I felt completely out of balance. I felt dangerously fragile out in the world and in danger of not surviving. I got sober at 23, and that was the Im- invitation back, I think, getting sober at a 12-step program I and mean, being told to go pray and meditate, you know, and not knowing what anyone meant by that. But it was, again, a permission coming out of a very conservative Catholic environment, this permission to go access the divine on my own, without a hierarchy, I began to slowly remember those moments of, oh, this is what connection feels like. This is what belonging to something bigger than myself feels like. Let me then kind of take the, the rage that, you know, what I saw was wrong, it was wrong. But let me have a way of seeing myself as a piece of it, as opposed to, as a did abused child, the cause of it. It's really natural to grow up thinking that you caused this problem. And it's also very natural, I think, when you're seeing this huge injustice in the world, like your friends are dying, to think you're helpless. Mm-hmm. And to, to have this spiritual connection that could help me begin to, without necessarily giving me answers, begin to grapple with where do I fit, right? Like I can't run away and the rage isn't helping me. What do I do? What do I do with these questions that have no answers? And I think that's the beginning of me kind of figuring out that in the way that I've come to understand it, it's an insult to the divine for me to be smaller than I am called to be. And it is as equally insulting for me to be larger than I am called to be in any given moment. Mm-hmm. That the divine asks of me not one thing. That my practice and the world around me asks of me multiple things. And sometimes they can be at the same time, which is you know a quandary. But that's the that's the deep question that that lives for me about where's the call and what is my piece of a collective call. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's sort of how I've come to kind of grapple with it.
1: So I hear you, you know, in talking about that sense of disappearing yourself as a kid. Like that feels really powerful. And then also naming that there's this other direction that we can kind of like veer away from a sense of right-sizedness and rootedness and in, mm-hmm. in what we're called to be. What does that being larger piece look like or feel like? Or was it, is there a moment in your story where you were inflated, mm-hmm. right, and, that, and had to come back and not just the side of disappearing or getting smaller?
0: I think i bumped into that wall more times than I can count, right? Like, <laughs> right? It's like, ooh, I'm here again. I remember early on, like, you know, in the AIDS epidemic and watching my friends get sick, and there's this level of just hopeless rage, like, you know, 21, 22, right, 23. Like, there's no systemic ability to change that. But here was a friend who was dying, right? And so the times at which my anger at what was happening around us let me not be present. And I remember clearly, like, feeling this sort of a friend of mine had died and who was my age, you know, 23, this sense of, I wish I had. Like, I wish I had gone and had tea, you know? I visited them in the hospital, I did the things, right? But But I hadn't had any mechanisms for navigating my own sense of shame, my own sense of rage, right? Like rage at the hospital staff, all of the things around me, you know, rage at President Reagan, whatever that was, had stopped me from going to have tea, Mm
1: -hmm. you know?
0: And I remember keenly feeling that sense of loss, that sense of I missed something. Didn't mean that my rage wasn't valid, but I can be angry another time. Never was going to be able to have tea, right? I was never going to be able to, to go and have lunch, you know, and to ask one more question or hear one more story. Again, you know, I was 22, 23 years old. I don't think I could have articulated it, but it, it felt like I got hit. It felt like I got hit in the gut, you know, that I had lost something because of my external sort of projecting of helplessness.
1: Okay, so now I'm really understanding this larger than right size piece in a different way because Mm -hmm. it's before what I've heard you talk about and I think it includes this but maybe just isn't limited to this is Mm -hmm. like a a sense of ego and like needing to be like the person that's the front of the organization or whatever but I'm also hearing like really an inflated sense of responsibility in some ways Mm -hmm. and that I immensely relate to Mm -hmm. like from my At least first six years or so of organizing work operating from a place of like this is my responsibility to do and to solve i'm reading this book right now uh when they call you a terrorist that patrice Cullors, one of the co-founders of black lives matter Mm -hmm. wrote a bunch of the stories that she's sharing is talking about going to visit loved ones either her brother or people from her community in prison and how it takes whole days or multiple days to go do that because people Mm -hmm. are transferred all over the place into these Mm -hmm. remote areas. And in reading that, the thing that keeps standing out to me is that with all the organizing work that she was doing, how did she have time to go spend multiple days to visit people in prison? Mm -hmm. And also, like, what a totally fucked up thing to be thinking. Like, well, we need to be out here trying to create systemic change. And so, like, how could we possibly clear all these days to go visit the people that are incarcerated that, Mm -hmm. like, we're fighting against mass incarceration to liberate, you know? I think that sense of over-responsibility is just so huge in the sense that we also don't want to give people a sense of less responsibility because we have humongous responsibility to one another.
0: Right, right, yeah. My nature is to be quiet, right? Like, that's my nature. And so I have to be pushed to be, like you know, the front of something that is, because mm-hmm. it is not my nature mm-hmm. um, in the ways that you are, right? Because I'm not like the front of a parade, right? I'm not shutting down the streets. It's just not in my nature to to be the center of attention in that way. It's it's painfully difficult to do. And so I, I'm i very clear, sort of, we, some of us have tendencies to right have to, mm-hmm. right? Whereas sometimes when I look at, you know, in, in relationship with a number of particularly, you know, sort of cis white men who go and make a thing, Mm-hmm. And thinking, you made a thing, but did you know that this thing existed? That idea of where does the idea come from to be the thing, as -hmm. opposed to looking around and saying, oh, like I'm waking up to this. I wonder who else, right? Like, but if your orientation in the world and your personality is to be the thing, like if you're a force to be reckoned with, your work, I think, is different than mine, right? Like, my reluctance to is as detrimental to the movement as if that was my sparkly object, right? And sometimes for me, it takes so much effort to push me to the front that I could easily let that momentum continue because in order to get me in motion to do that, there's a lot of motion that has to happen. Mm -hmm. And so when navigating, when do I pull back? And when is that my tendency to want to retreat versus this is actually the right time to figure that out? And I think there's a delicate balance of doing that Like, this moment I actually really need to step I need to actually be a a very difficult obstacle in the path. And then there's times that I just need to be in in service in the background, right? Sometimes those are, like, moment-to-moment decisions. Yeah. As opposed to sometimes they're these big swings.
1: Yeah. I love that you're also bringing up disposition or, like, personality. Because Mm -hmm. part of you, as this incredible person, is, like your tendency is to be quiet. And it's not a morally corrupt quiet. <laughs>
0: right, it's right, right.
1: actually great because we have a lot of really loud people. And I think I talk to a lot of folks who have felt really politically activated by the past couple of years who feel like, well, I'm not the one to like be angry or be yelling or be the quote unquote activist or whatever. Right. But also because of that are sort of like absolving themselves of having to disrupt anything. And some of that gets into some sketchy territory of, like, right. a very, like, self-preserving kind of bourgeois, like, well, everything should change, but people shouldn't be so disruptive about it. Right.
0: the Civility. <laughs> right. The civ- why can't we have a civil conversation?
1: Yeah. And I'm wondering, maybe we can even take a minute to just sort of play in, like, these two sandboxes of getting smaller or disappearing ourselves, what that can look and feel like and what some of the invitations to like work with that are. Mm -hmm. And then hop into the sandbox of trying to be larger than we're called to be right? and different ways that shows up and what are like some of the ways that we kind of come back to center because I totally experience both.
0: You know, we were talking about being the front person as a trans man with HIV, right? Like that was one of the biggest asks anyone has ever made of me you want to put my face on a poster literally put my face (laughs) on a poster trans men with hiv like that was gonna go as a national campaign like that i could never take back Mm. with an aspect of my identity that i don't lead with outside of certain circles you know and beginning to think about having a campaign of awareness around trans men living with hiv that we actually exist that we have needs that no one is measuring right and that somebody has to on some level be the narrative or a narrative, right? And sometimes, particularly when you're talking about a relatively small population that is multiply marginalized, right? Like someone has got to put a face to an experience Mm -hmm. and hopefully then figure out how do you create context and enough care that other folks can then do that. But someone's gotta take that hit, right? Someone's gotta take that plunge because if we don't humanize this stuff, it's not gonna work, right? And I was like, please God, anybody but me. Like, you've got to be kidding. And it was like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. I really did make some calls before I got to you. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm like, ah. And so that is where I had to really grapple with my own personal comfort and service. It really was clear that I was gonna have to get profoundly uncomfortable and actually do something I don't like because the cost if I didn't, to me, and the cost of the people that are like me and are even harder hit by this system, was too great for me to turn away. Mm-hmm. It's the inability to turn away, I think is the key to that, right? So if I am trying to manage my own personal style, tendencies, character, how do I do that without looking away? Mm-hmm. And if we look away, that's I think a cue that says, ooh, this is maybe not so okay, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we were talking about earlier, it's the balance of to know my own heart and to know the world. I know, intimately know my own heart, you know? And, and it's revealed to me all the time. Like I, I learned new things about myself. But knowing my own heart does not absolve me from understanding the world around me and all of the moving pieces Mm -hmm. to not look away from how things actually are. Mm -hmm. And if I have a big understanding of how the world works, it does not absolve me of knowing my own heart. Mm -hmm. And I think people have a tendency to to sort of by nature gravitate one place or the other, right? Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how do we know both and then figuring out in any given moment, where do I serve, right? Mm -hmm. But you have to know both.
1: Yeah, I'm hearing, like, one framework that's used is, like, intention and impact. And that both being in alignment is actually really important. Sort of the rightness of how we're showing up is not only determined by the external impact that we're having, and it's also not only determined by the intention right. or, like, the yeah. internal approach that we're taking. Right,
0: and, you know, obviously that matters depending on and who someone is, what what's going on for them. So the internal cost of being big... You know, if we're talking about black trans women with HIV, the cost every day to just be, Mm -hmm. to leave the house, right? Mm -hmm. Then to sort of demand a level of presence. It's okay for people to provide care, like to, to sort of take themselves out of the limelight. And how do we do that in ways that don't let people disappear? But I think those are really important understandings about like that internal care, particularly for folks who are always being maxed out is as important as sort of fueling this sort of wider movement. But I think when we do this in collective, the seamlessness of which that can happen Mm. is much more possible Mm. than if we're looking at individuals.
1: Hi, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause so that I can tell you about a few rewards that are live on our Patreon account right now. These are fairly new, and so to check them out, you can head over to Patreon. That's p a t r e o n. dot com slash healing justice to check it out while I tell you about it. So Teo is talking lots about how we attune to one another. And one of the ways that we are aspiring to do that on this podcast is by sending some appreciation and encouragement gifts to every single guest and volunteer that has contributed to the show so far. We're actually in the process now of winding down season one by early July 2018 and taking a break for reflection, for expressing appreciation, and restructuring ourselves to move into a fall season, coming back to be with you uh, with greater intentionality um, and really feeling ready in a way that uh, helps us share incredible stories and wisdom with you and practices like we have been and also is sustainable for us. And so one of the ways that we're working to make this more sustainable is to raise some funds to help support this project. So when you join us as a sustainer on Patreon, you give a monthly donation of any size. And I particularly want to pitch the $8 a month level as the level that actually finances us being able to send special gifts of appreciation to people who have shared on this podcast so far. If you're like me, you have uh, fallen in love with some of the voices and teachings and perspectives and work of folks who have come on. I mean, a lot of these folks are really lifelines and inspirations for us by sharing on the podcast and also in the work that they're doing in frontline communities to center healing and organizing for liberation. And so the least that we can do, we can we, we don't pay people and we don't have a lot of resources to share, but the least we can do is send a gift that's thoughtful, that's heartfelt, and a way you can help us do that is by joining our Patreon at the $8 a month level. Uh, we still also if you're able to contribute at a higher level have really incredible Yes Liberation essences from Dory Midnight, who was a guest on the episode two weeks ago, that we would love to mail you one in July if you join at that $13 a month level. So thank you for listening to this pitch and for considering crowdsourcing the resources that we need to bring you this project every single week for free. So head on over to patreon.com slash healing justice if you want to scoop up one of those rewards. And now back to Tao. So I want to think too about like this sort of getting larger tendency, mm-hmm. like the flip side of self disappearing. This one I resonate more with in terms of like internal pressure. And for me, it's been like a really marked transition from I'm from milwaukee and only moved to new york from milwaukee two and a half years ago and i still spend a lot of time back home like this experience of moving across the country has made me really really deeply aware of my very midwestern wiring Mm. (laughs) um it's a thing both just culturally in general and then also within an organizing world because part of it's i'm getting older and whatever but i feel like the way i was brought up in Milwaukee organizing community was really just about, like, doing the work and getting it done. Part of, I think, the humility of being in a city like that is, like, I would sort of joke, how full of yourself are you really going to be? Like, you live in, like, Wisconsin. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how, like, cool and flashy (laughs) are you, really, at the end of the day? But then in moving to New York, it was, like, the first weekend that I was here, and I'm in still just, like, total social justice space. It's Mm -hmm. not like I'm running around Wall Street or something. And... All of a sudden, every single person that I'm meeting is the founder of something. Where are the people who are, like, part of the thing that all these people founded? Because I Wait. literally everyone I meet has all of these projects that are, like, completely and wholly theirs. And, you know, there's also, like, this factor here around a lot of foundations are headquartered here a lot of like national kind of networks and really important convenings that happen right that people travel to and so like there's this really pragmatic good thing around how do we aggregate power to create the change that we want to see but also how does that really not become about individuals and feeling like if we're not creating the hugest thing then we're not really doing something, right? There is kind of a a celebrity activist Mm -hmm. culture that emerges. And I got to say, like, depending on where I am in a given week and what environment I'm in and how I'm feeling about myself, I can get kind of swept into this, like, emotional track, feeling like my contribution, not just how am I using my life force, but me, my name, my body, like my contribution is so centrally important for some reason. I feel like when I'm able to actually sit back in the community and just work together with people, I remember that sense of humongous importance and responsibility is actually not that much about my individual life, but is really about these greater values and communities that I'm in service of and interdependent with. I feel like being in this place has made that pull into like being bigger than what we're being called to be, Like has. Has felt more accessible to me in mm-hmm. a way that I don't love.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, the dangers of capitalism, right? The dangers of the reality of, of funding, all of that stuff is true. And again, you know, I think there's nuance to that about who has been brought up
1: mm-hmm.
0: to believe that their contribution is essential, right? As opposed to needed. I think there's a big difference in that. Mm. I was obviously raised and spent. 30 some odd years of my life being educated and treated as a girl at a very particular time in space. And it was never even allowed on the altar as a kid. All of the messages about the highest points of leadership were just not my domain. So don't look there. Don't even ask those questions. And so I come with a very specific context about that. That's heavily gendered, you know, generational. A lot of times, particularly as I was transitioning, my internal sense of self was lagging way behind the ways that the world was interacting with me. You know, people were starting to see this 30-something-year-old, 40-something-year-old white man in a way that I was always like, ooh, hey, you know, like, (laughs) I I forgot, you know. And then to be in the company, particularly of other white men who had had their entire lives with a certain level of messaging and this unquestioned hierarchy of leadership, this unquestioned that moving to the top over other people was always and inherently the path. There was never even a question about if we're all the best, where did everybody else get, like, <laughs> right? Like, what if I can't be the best? And what's the beat down for that? Like, particularly in men who have been raised, you know, as boys and particularly straight white men, it was so culturally outside of my context that I had no under, no way to understand this, right? Yeah. And I've come to sort of understand whiteness in a different way as I've come through, right? I think I've come to understand it, particularly given the context I came from around, I think, a little bit more of a savior, as opposed to a leader, because I think some of my heavily gendered experience, the ways that for me whiteness has showed up is about having the answer to save, as opposed to the answer to sort of ram leadership through. And I didn't think it just has a probably generational and gendered context to that. Mm. But the bigness, the creating something from nothing, I think is different. Like you know, so when I. I do a lot of work with trans folks with HIV, and so when I'm in relationship with black trans women who have HIV, the service to the world in creating something has a totally different value than I think it does you know, when white men just pick up the thing. So like juxtaposing that with the sort of movement to ask white men to not run for office against people of color, right? They're literally asking progressive white men to not run is revolutionary to watch them sort of respond to this is fascinating. But like, no, 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 don't do the thing, because we know the consequences that you will win Mm. against a woman of color every single day. I think a lot of that really depends on where people come from. How do you lead when you need to lead? And then follow or collaborate or be when you need to do that. We live in such an individualistic, categorical, absolute culture that it's like, I either do or I don't. I am or I'm not. I lead or I follow. Those level of absolutes, I think, are dangerous to us because there's times that we need to and there's times we need not. When we're in relationship, I think there's a weave of that. When we move out of our individual understanding to what's my responsibility to collective. And depending on who the us is, like when does it serve us for me to be in front and center for a time? And when is that counterproductive? And who else needs to be there and when? Those are the things that this sort of level of collective care provide some of the answers for?
1: Yeah, I'm thinking especially about like folks who have become really activated like in the past two years to become more engaged in political work or social justice work mm-hmm. in a new way. And I'm just thinking of particular folks in my life or groups that I've worked with that on the one hand are sort of more organized toward the deeply feeling but not really converting into risk and action
0: mm-hmm. side
1: of that experience sometimes an over-carefulness to, like, actually showing up and taking some risk. And then also this other piece of, like, there's a group in particular that I'm thinking of that I think was very symbolic of what's happening in a lot of the country, which was, like, this crew in Manhattan that is doing really electoral work, is vast majority white, vast majority got initiated around this idea of the resistance about a year ago, right? Mm and are so in action mode like are so in like what we're supposed to do now is we're gonna knock on doors we're gonna get different people elected which is such useful action but also when i did a workshop with that particular group we did a story sharing exercise where we talked about what about this political moment like what feels at stake for me Mm -hmm. how does that relate to my history and who i am and like my place in this world I facilitated it horribly because I gave people like three minutes to share their stories. <laughs> it was not nearly enough time. How learned, right? In those three minutes, there were people crying. There were mm-hmm. people talking about how they had seen, you know, their parents who had like survived the Holocaust, talking about the messages that they got from that as a kid and how this moment is feeling for them now. And literally just people who were like, We have never talked about ourselves, our deep personal grappling in this space at all, even for three minutes. Also, like the precariousness of that to be going out in the world, doing, doing, doing and doing useful action. But also that feels to me like the making larger side of like, let's Mm. go have impact. But we haven't even slowed down enough to actually like find our right-sizedness, find our groundedness in how we locate ourselves in this moment
0: Mm -hmm.
1: in the world.
0: Yeah. You know, and I think many communities have this, right? Like, it's it's not new. I just often think that sort of white supremacy hasn't allowed us to sort of share mm-hmm. different ways of being that aren't plowing ahead and industriousness and productivity. And, and I think often from particularly, you know, the lens of white supremacy, and, and particularly for those of us who have been raised white, this idea that there's no value if there's no product, and to understand that there's doing and being that is so undervalued or unseen. For me, it's, it's a both-and and it always is. It's not necessarily a 50-50 thing, but it's, mm-hmm. it's always a both-and of knowing my heart is critical and understanding the world around me is critical. Completely navel-gazing and self-focusing is not okay. And living at this like heightened pitch of analysis and action that comes out of analysis without grounding, without breath, without relationship is equally dangerous. I don't think the polar extremes are ever helpful in absolutes. Like, I think there's really times that going completely inside is valid. And there's times where absolutely without thought I have to throw my body down. Like, but it's always, what do I come back to? Like, what's the mix of that? And understand what gets valued in this world and who gets to feel comfortable in what I've shared that for me, I'm an incredibly quiet, rural living, you know, I'd raise alpacas and bunny rabbits and chickens and would probably never leave the scenery around me but for a call, right? Like, my tendency is to be this sort of really gentle kind of guy. And I happen to have a particular skill set that I think is useful in the world right now. The divine has set up, I think, a way of being that my comfort at home is disquieted in a way that I can't stay, right? And I have to understand what my heart is. My heart is painfully introverted, and my comfort zone is quiet. The world needs me to not always be in my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. What do I need to do in order to move outside of my personal way of being in the world? And that often takes a lot of motion, right? And so for me, where reticence and quiet and sort of behind the scenes is this deep devotional act. I could stay there forever and have that seem okay, but because I understand the world to be what it is, it doesn't matter how much I know my heart other than knowing myself well enough to know how I have to, what pieces do I need to put into play to move beyond my comfort zone? Mm -hmm. Because the world needs a piece of this puzzle that I have. I don't have all the answers, but I certainly have some Mm -hmm. of the process. To keep them home in service of my comfort is, for me, a a moral affront that I can't live with. Mm -hmm. And so I have to do the thing. You know, for example, I got a call three years ago from Cecilia Chung from the Transgender Law Center about this project that she was starting called Positively Trans she was looking for a trans man who had hiv who was willing to be public i was not her first call you know Mm -hmm. you know we didn't know each other but i got a call and was like i need you to do this i've asked several other people and they just can't make themselves public and it was like my biggest nightmare like someone literally wanted to make me a poster child they want to put my face on a poster like you know and i'm very very public about my hiv living with hiv for as long as i have i do not lead with you know, I, I don't actually identify as a trans man, I identify as somebody who went through gender transition. So it isn't the place that I reside. And so someone wanted me to go public in a way that I was like, Oh, God, please, anyone else. And there was no like, in that moment, there really wasn't anyone else. And I understood, right, like, my comfort zone was this thing. But I also understood that I was white. By being disabled, I didn't have a job I could lose. I was 47 years old. So I was older I had been living with HIV for a long time, which meant this wasn't new to me. There was a lot of places of pain that I had moved through. I realized, after some discernment, it wasn't my first choice. Um, I could take a hit for a while. Mm -hmm. My comfort zone could shift, and I could be this poster child for a time because I had the ability to do that. I had had the space and the time, and I had the privilege, or the protection, probably more accurately, to do this thing that came from this deep understanding about who could not do that who was never going to be able to or not right now who couldn't be the first person to slap their face up on a poster mm-hmm. then what did i need to do to like i had to articulate this is not my comfort zone and what's my support system right like what's going to move me and then how do i use that relationally right i don't want to be the poster child i don't want to be the thing But how is that of service? And so how do I use that to then make connections, right, to provide shelter? How do I create a secret Facebook group so guys can find me because of my, you know, celebrity for whatever that is? And then I can bring them into a secret space of trans men with HIV so that other guys can meet each other. And that serves me. Like, I had never been in a room with other than one other trans man with HIV. I'd never Mm. been in a space that had four, five, six, seven, you know, eight, nine, ten, you know, guys with HIV, All of us had had this experience of being alone in the world. Understanding sort of even sometimes in that moving out of my comfort zone, I find a piece of myself and it's the sense of loss and yearning that I didn't know was there. Mm -hmm. But once that is of service, what's the next thing, right? Those are the things I think that for me, because of my reticence for public life and the irony of sort of where my life is, is known to me, right? As opposed to, I think some folks naturally have this on, right? They're just naturally bigger. And their identities allow them to immediately be looked towards and to be like oh right that's a different comfort zone Mm -hmm. like that's my worst nightmare that's their happiest place right like right and so what are the practices that have to get put into place to help that person discern when is that bigness of service to the world at large and then what is your heart afraid of like if you are not relevant Mm -hmm. what is the terror in smallness that you have to face. Like, I know what the terror and bigness is for me, but what is the terror for you in, in ordinariness or in mm-hmm. collective or in being part of the stream? Like, what is the terror that gets struck in your, in your heart? And how do you not look away from that? And I think the people that you're talking about who are newly activated, I think it's human nature. We, we, we swing on a pendulum, right? Mm-hmm. So people go all out and disrupt all the things or feel like, I don't know enough. You know, that's not my identity, right? Who am I to, you know? Disrupt your dinner conversation then. Have one-on-one hard conversations for a while until we don't need to leap. We can move slowly, we can inch, we can hand-to-hand-to-hand take action. We don't have to rush. And sometimes we can rush, right? Yeah. For me, it always comes back to practice. It always comes back to, what are the ways that I ritualize devotion? What are the ways that I ritualize care? Care for self, care for others, like, coming back to the mechanisms of that is about sort of where discernment can happen in terms of what's going to keep you from not looking away. And we talked about this in terms of if I am somebody who tends to be small and that's my comfort zone, when I'm waking up to what the world really is, how do I not look away and retreat to my comfort zone? If someone is oriented towards being really big, how do they not look away from their own heart, right? How do you not shy away from the internal motivation and the internal knowing, because that might be more terrifying. Mm-hmm. And how do we support one another in knowing that? One of the things I care deeply about at this point in time is the ways we think about leadership, particularly in mar- multiply marginalized communities. The ways that the outside world uses people as tokens and uses them up, and the ways they end up being you know, shattered. I've seen it a lot, particularly with older trans men And often trans men of color who have been launched into these leadership roles without any foundation of care and serve these powers that aren't coming from the community when their moment in fame is done when they've been used up by these institutions that aren't actually in service of the community at all to be a poster child when you're coming out of that environment without any actual power to to make change the civil isolation, right? Because the jealousy that comes from within community, the critique that comes from outside, all of the ways in which that commodification, the consuming of people and identities Mm -hmm. as opposed to care, they end up with depression, addiction, suicidality, physical manifestations of all kinds of things, like just the exhaustion of that. And we have a leadership structure that's all or nothing, right? So Mm -hmm. you can't come back to community and be cared for without losing your status as a leader? Like, what does it mean to to be profoundly broken in moments without any loss of the original brilliance that got you there, hmm. right? Like, how do we do that for people? And how do we have a rotating leadership structure that allows the seamless nature of, you know what, this is so you, like, you're called for this. I'm right behind you. And then how do we envelop you back into this sense of collective care that thank you for that service? And then who's who's next to do the next piece. And it doesn't mean you're done, right? I think it's that sort of level of prominence and service and devotion that my own only understanding of it can be collectively with moments of highlight. There's a piece that individuals play, but they need never to be alone, whether that's imposed by self or others, nor should being a small fish in a very big pond, be an isolating experience and an isolation away from our call, right? From the divine, from our moment, right? There's a ways in which retreating is also an isolation. For me, it's often been self-imposed, right? And so that's that piece of, I think, right-sized is always understanding myself in terms of who am I as an individual and to whom do I belong collectively. When I don't lose sight of either of those is when I think there's a much more seamless motion between size and call and answer and role that I don't think that we leave a lot of time for in, in our movements, in our rush to fix instead of our rush to heal,
1: mm.
0: right?
1: It strikes me that some elements of this balance have some ground in being sort of a head project or or an intellectual project in terms of asking ourselves the questions around well what about my identity or personality or personal experience makes me tend towards one of these ways and the other and i'm i need to remember and reflect intentionally once in a while Mm -hmm. like to kind of interrupt my habitual approach of either making myself small or making myself the center of attention or fluctuating between the two or whatever but that really the thing that comforts me when thinking about this concept is that actually it's a majority heart project not Mm -hmm. a head project so I know you're going to share a practice with us Mm -hmm. that will hopefully resource us to do all of these
0: beautiful things in in 10 minutes or less you know yeah exactly
1: but can you give just a quick preview of Mm -hmm. of kind of what's behind what you're going to be sharing
0: Mm -hmm. everything comes down to practice for me and so for me this is the place I go that I intentionally privilege my heart over my head where I touch the ground that that is the practice for me so that's it
1: Mm. so if you want to do an intentional practice to elevate the heart above the head you can download the next episode with Teo if you are listening to this right when it comes out you may know already that our practices post two days after the conversation so you might not see it up quite yet but it's coming for you And Teo, I just want to thank you so much for sharing so the tip of the iceberg of the wisdom and heart and care that you bring to the justice work you do and just the straight up loving folks work you do. Thank you. And thank you for generously sharing with me and with Mm -hmm. everybody else listening.
0: I'm I'm grateful for the the moment to, to talk.
1: You just heard a conversation between Teo Drake and Kate Warning. Remember to check out our brand-spanking new rewards at Patreon.com/HealingJustice to sponsor a gift for one of our talented guests and volunteers from this season. There are 79 people who contributed to this season. It's incredible. So thank you for your generosity in helping us send them something uh, to appreciate their labor. You can download the corresponding practice with Drake to privilege your heart above your head. It's a really simple practice and it's super needed. If you're listening to this right when it comes out, our conversations come out on Tuesdays and the practices drop on Thursdays so you can watch for that. And hey, if you're going to be at Allied Media Conference, look out for us there. And as part of that work, we also made a custom zine in partnership with Autumn Brown, Maurice Mitchell Brody, Caitlin Metz, and Marsha Lee. So if you can't be at Allied Media Conference, but you want access to print this zine for yourself or to print a whole bunch for your community, we want to share the PDF with you. So in order to get it, you can join our email list at healingjustice.org. And we'll be sending out the PDF of that zine next week to our whole list. So go to healingjustice.org, click that button right in the middle of the homepage and sign up for the email list to get a copy of that PDF. The links are in the show notes to find us on social media. Stay in touch. We share quotes and some gorgeous, inspiring stuff from our guests every single day. And big, big thanks to Katie McCutcheon for editing this episode and the mixing and production work of Zach Meyer at The Coal Room. Thank you for your commitment to building movements that liberate all of us. Hear you next week.